This is 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. We ask that you would help us to take it in, inwardly digest, meditate upon the word of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, your attention, please. I'd like to say a few words. Eternal glory. That is what awaits the student who wins the Tri-Wizard Tournament. Thus were the words of Dumbledore and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And he went on to introduce that there would be terrible tasks that these students must survive in order to make it through to eternal glory. But eternal glory isn't only... I think they got that phrase from the Bible. I'm I'm certain that they did. Eternal glory. It's found here in this passage this morning. And it's not just for wizarding school children, but it's for every believer called by God in Christ Jesus. No matter how humbling our circumstances, no matter how humbling our sins, eternal glory is for all who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we have been sobered in our immediate context by the severity of our anxieties, as pointed out by Peter. Uh, We have been sobered by our understanding of our experiences of suffering, by the presence of our adversary, the devil, in verse uh, 6 through 9. You remember the devil who is like a roaring lion, crouching about, seeking to devour, or whomever he can devour. Peter has been speaking to people who have reason to be afraid. And you remember his first designation of them in the first chapter. They are elect exiles. In other words, people called out of the sea of humanity into everlasting salvation through Christ Jesus. All the elect of God called unto faith and salvation through Christ Jesus. Elect exiles. In other words, they are they are thrust out into other climes, other locations where, in fact, the church uh, is under great persecution. And they are aliens. They are, as it were, uh, they don't belong. They're strangers. Strangers and aliens in the world who, who understand their first identity is in Jesus Christ. Their secondary identity is in all of the the things that make us culturally uh, representative and and engaged uh, with people groups and language groups and uh, groups and systems in which all of us, you and I, we move and we live and have our being. But there is something in which we have, uh, which has greater primacy in the life of the believer and uh, that identity which extends beyond anything and everything that we are, even our 
our genealogical data, even the data that comes from our fathers and mothers and where we've come from and what families we've been born into. And that is, as a believer, the supreme identity for a believer is found in belonging to the family of God and in living in Christ Jesus and being in union with Christ, Christ being our greater brother. So he's writing to these people. And he's writing to them because they are afraid. They are afraid of their circumstances. They are afraid of persecution that has come upon them. They've been surprised by personal suffering and trials. In fact, that's why Peter says, do not be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. He says it because they are surprised. They don't expect it. They're living in, uh, in, in, in Asia, in other words, the lower extremities, the middle to lower extremities of modern-day Turkey. That's where they are. They are people discouraged by failure. They're discouraged uh, and struggling with the assurance of God's love for them because of sin. And perhaps they're even wondering whether or not God even cares. And I think that's why Peter even says that he cares for you. He cares for you. In verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He tells the people that God cares for them because perhaps by their circumstances, they are wondering whether or not God does care for them. We know that God is good. We know that God cares for his people. We know that God is sovereign, infinite in his power, wisdom, Power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. We know all of this. We know he is gracious and we know he is merciful, that he is capable of showing us mercy, working powerfully in us to do all of his holy will. And yet at the same time, we wonder, we know that he cares for other individuals, but does he care for me? Because I've gone through trying circumstances, because I've gone through great troubles, because I'm suffering, because I'm persecuted because I'm anxious and I'm afraid. Well, that's why Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he does care for you. Peter is pointing to several encouragements. That's that's one of them that will help us to not be quite so afraid or discouraged or waffling in our Christian conduct. Uh, Self-condemning, we tend to be horribly self-condemning, so very graceless with ourselves. We lose sight of God's grace in Christ often. But he's also writing to the discouraged who struggle with assurance of God's love. And he's pointing to many encouragements, several of which will help us not be quite so afraid. And so he wants us to come to an understanding of God and his character this morning. And there are two Two basic things that are true of God that I find in this passage this morning that we will do well to encourage ourselves by. We should be encouraged by, in its context, God's mighty hand in verse 6, the statement that we may effectively resist him by simply, the devil that is, by believing only the word faith. What's in view here is not somehow Peter saying, look, you have this wonderful power within you, this extraordinary superhuman ability to be a believing individual and and out of the strength and power of your own internalization of faith you can conquer satan and his wiles well that's not what he's saying he's rather he's saying in light of the things which you believe in 
the potency of the realities that you have accepted as being true in God and in Christ Jesus. And he has also encouraged them in light in verse 9 of the, the mutual suffering of others in similar ways to themselves. And so he would add to those encouragements this morning. And they flow, as I said a moment ago, from the very nature of God. And firstly, I think I want us to see this morning in this passage, that Peter shows us that he is the God of all grace. There are two things we learn of God, and the first of which is found in this very statement in verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is the God of all grace. Well, what does that mean? What is grace? Grace is used, or a derivative is used, more than 130 times in the English Bible, mostly in the New Testament, mostly by the Apostle Paul, who is often referred to as the Apostle of, all, of, of Grace, because he loves to speak of the grace of God. For you have been saved by grace, and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, lest any should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What is grace? Undeserved or un- undeserved favor. In other words, we are favored by God, but we have no right to it. We are favored by God. We receive his free forgiveness and pardon, but, but we don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor. It's, it's God's riches, we've heard, at, God, at Christ's expense. It's a free gift from God through the merit of Jesus Christ. We receive mercy from God despite not deserving it. And in fact, despite the fact that the reality is that we deserve his judgment and his condemnation. There are many verses that talk about grace. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24. Romans 3.5.15, if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Romans 11, 5 and 6. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Some of us are working and we are working to deserve God's grace. You never can. You will never be in a state where you deserve the grace of God. Or somehow as God weighs it all out in a scale, you'll be justified according to the works that you have done. The Bible never, ever presents such an idea. Rather, in all of the texts I've just read, in light of this passage this morning, we are saved by God's grace, undeserved, unmerited favor, the free gift of God. I love especially Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, God is the source of grace. You're not, I'm not. God is the source of grace. He is the fountainhead. God causes grace to abound to you. When you are, when you are, graciously cared for, when you experience the grace of newfound friendship, when you experience the grace of pardon and forgiveness from another Christian person, all of that flows from God. All of that has come to you from this source, the Lord God himself, who is the fountainhead 
How has God given you grace this morning? Well, God has sent forth his son. He didn't spare him. He who was innocent, he poured out on him the fullness of wrath and judgment upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in order that he might give you grace. That's why it is all of grace, because of Christ's substitution in your place. And it enables, he enables the cleansing and wiping away of all your and my sins. Though they are black and horrible, worthy of judgment in Christ Jesus, because of the sacrifice of himself, your sins are forgiven if you're trusting in him, if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, and if you're not trusting in your own works. If you are trusting in your own works, then be prepared to stand before God and answer according to the covenant of works. And the covenant of works, you will be destroyed. The covenant of works demands the perfect obedience of all of God's commandments in sum and in toto. You must obey them all and you must obey them all perfectly. And you cannot transgress that law once. Otherwise, the soul that sins shall die. No, we have come to the covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in his grace. We trust that Christ has obeyed the commandments perfectly in our place. We trust that he has offered himself as a living and atoning sacrifice for us, for our sins, so that we are received of our Father in heaven because of his grace through Christ. If you believe in him and you trust in him, not in your own works, your sins are washed away, and that is all of grace. That's what grace is. But his grace is not only your reception of his gifts through Christ, it's also his unchanging disposition towards you. In other words, he's always gracious to you. We question that sometimes, don't we? But God's disposition towards us always is grace, grace, grace. His grace is also his unchanging disposition It's also his power working through you and through me. It's his covenant, his covenant of grace intended to save you. His promises that abound concerning eternal life are trying God's relationship with you and his presence in your very heart. He lives within you. It's all of grace. The totality of Peter's epistle to the church is what he says through Silvanus, my faithful brother, So I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In verse 12. This is the true grace of God. There's no other. There's no other. There's no counterfeit that really sounds anything like this. And yes, it is this simple. You believe in Jesus Christ. You trust in him. And he... To him is transferred your guilt, and from him is imputed his righteousness to you. And you are received of his beloved Father. The Spirit comes and lives within you, and you now live in a new way, with a spirit of obedience, a desire to do what is pleasing in God's sight, having been redeemed and saved, justified by faith through Christ. Well, he is the God of all grace, but he's also the God of eternal glory. 
He writes to, to, to people who are suffering, who are concerned and anxious, fearful, depressed over their present circumstances, whose mindset is such that as they walk out into the marketplace, as they interact with people, they are well aware of the fact, I don't belong here, I am a stranger, I'm an alien, I'm an exile. Although these are my people, I'm not really of them. I am of the kingdom of God. I belong to the Lord. And I'm, I'm destined for something far greater than this. And it's not a spirit of arrogance and of pride, but rather of humility before the world that we have been saved by grace through faith. And that grants us an understanding that, no, I am not of this world because my father is not of this world. And my, my great Savior has gone into another place where he, has prepared, he is preparing even now in, in his Father's house, which is of many rooms, a place for you and for me. And that's where we belong, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the kingdom of God yet to come. So Peter's writing to these people and he knows that they know they don't belong here. It's really hard when you come to faith in Christ too, sometimes to to step away from our old life, isn't it? The truth of the matter is, even when we are regenerated and saved by grace and we walk in newness of life, the truth is that all that we have lived before still is part of who we are. And it's hard to shake that. And that's why he says, look, take your eyes off of this world and see what you are in Christ and consider the eternal glory that God has in store for you. It's comforting to know our future dwelling, our, our future state, that, that there is a glory that awaits us. It's comforting to suffering Christians, suffering because of the devil's opposition is outlined in verse 8 and 9. When we are walking around with careful sobriety of spirit, we are on the alert. The adversary, our adversary, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whomever he may. Well, it's good to know that in the end, no matter what he does, whatever harm he may do, I'm going on to eternal glory in my Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory awaits. Glory awaits me. Well, what is that? Glory is a wonderful thing, and I, I think it means a very different thing in the Harry Potter books. But glory for the believer is so much deeper and so much bigger, so much better. There's a lot that the Bible talks about with relation to glory. And recently in Bible studies on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about glory. And I was asked that question, well, what does glory mean? And so I gave a bit of an example and a bit of an answer, and yet... It seemed to me that I needed to say an awful lot more, and so we've revisited that subject the following week. And what we have said is, at least in some, the glory of God is supremely His moral character, His absolute purity, the glory of His being in all of its perfections, the weightiness of God, it's it's like when you and I talk about someone that we deeply revere and respect, and we have a great deal of respect for them. We begin to speak almost with hushed tones, and we begin to feel a sense of we're, we're struggling with how to speak about this person and how to say uh, 
uh, how much we really respect them and care about them. Uh, well, when it comes to God, the truth of the matter is as humans explain God, we are our language is insufficient to take in the fullness of his excellence and, and to be able to accurately reflect it in our conversation. But God's honor and his glory is displayed in his creation. It's seen in his moral perfection, the splendor of his majesty on high. We see his glory in his son in the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, Jesus says to the Father, I thank you that you have glorified me and I have glorified you. How did Jesus do that? He spoke of God. He shared what God is, who God is, what God has done. He spoke of the, the grace of God, the, the grace of the God of all grace. And, and in that, the people remarked and worshipped, rejoiced, gave thanks and revered the Lord all the more. God's honor is displayed in his lofty position. He is high and lifted up. And Jesus is the manifest presence of Yahweh, Jehovah God. If you've seen Jesus, if you've come to know Jesus, and he lives within your heart, then you know, you understand the glory of the ever-living God. There is glory. God is glorious in his holiness. There is the threefold repetition in the heavens itself of God's holy, holy, holy holiness. Glory, glory of God is his all-present holiness. His perfect, unending, white, resplendent holiness. There's a threefold repetition of the holiness of God in Revelation 4.8, but also in Psalm 99. It's his central and supreme attribute that he is holy, holy, holy. God is glorious. He is resplendent. And it is our great privilege as God's people to give him glory. We don't add anything to him, but we simply glorify God in the way in which we respond to him. And so we're here in a simple place in a small body of people. But do we understand the significance of what we're doing? We are in the presence of God and we are honoring and worshiping God. I hope that therefore we take great care in worshiping this consuming fire who is our God. He is an awful God. We must honor him as God. We must give him religious homage, not uh, not not just simply going and listening to the nice music and and hearing an encouraging word. No. Reverencing and worshiping and 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 standing and in and, and sitting in in awe before God and singing with a a deep sense of seriousness about our task in worshiping the living God the God of all hosts. And so with our tongues, we declare his perfections. We worship and glorify him. We, we, we share with him that we love him. We give, we give a portion of what we have in recognition of the fact that God is filled with glory. We sing, we ascribe, we proclaim that God is glorious. We share with others that he is strong, mighty, lifted up. We render to him what he is due. We speak of his excellence. We speak of his virtues, his attributes. 
We obey his word. We bow in reverence before him. We worship and give thanks. We cry out at times for deliverance and need. And we give thanks constantly because we know that what what he has given us is undeserved. God is glorious. And his glory is something to which he is taking us. In other words, to, to stand in the very presence of God. And that's what he's telling us. He is the God of eternal glory. And so Peter is saying, look, one day, no matter how humbling your circumstances, one day God's intention is to to cause you, to make you, to move you, to press you into holiness such that one day you will stand in his very presence. None can stand in the presence of God unless they be holy. But in Christ we are holy, because Christ is holy, holy, holy. Jesus said in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, would be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. There is no higher privilege for a Christian than to stand in the presence of the Savior, the living Son of God, and to see him in his glory. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration that John and Peter went up on the mountain, and there was Jesus, and the veil was lifted for a moment, and Elijah and Moses were there, and, and Peter and John were simply speechless for a moment, taken aback with the glory of the Son. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, the Son of God. And Peter stammers and says, The sight which I have seen is so extraordinary to me. Let's make three tabernacles up here. And Jesus says, It's not enough. It's not enough. We really don't know what to say, do we, before the glory of God? And to be honest, here in this world, we see little enough of the glory of God. And yet it's true that, as John Calvin said, if if we look about enough, we can see the sparks of the glory of God in what he has made throughout this universe. But there is coming a day when we will stand in the presence of God. A God who is unstained by immorality. A God who does not lie. A God who does not neglect anything. Who carries out all his holy will. A God who keeps his promises perfectly. A God who pours out grace upon an undeserving people. One day we will stand before his matchless son. And we will hear, well done good and faithful servant. That day is coming, not because of your moral excellence, but because of the moral excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when tempted to sin, did not sin. Though our sins were laid upon him, he never committed any sin, nor was there any guile in his mouth. He was accepted because he is the beloved son. 
The God of all grace and glory will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Some of us this morning are a little worried about personal holiness. Some of us are saying, I fall far short of what I know I ought to do. Romans 7, it's that chapter all over again, isn't it? The good that I would do, I do not do. The evil that I do not want to do, I do. Well, this is of great comfort to you and to me. The God of grace, the God of all grace and glory, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What you need to realize this morning is the great enterprise of pursuing holiness and of becoming holy, that holiness without which none of us will stand before God, is not left up to you. Your God will carry this out in you. You see, because this is His pledged and absolutely certain promise. God will make you holy so that one day you can stand before Him in His resplendent glory. It doesn't mean that we should be lazy. It doesn't mean that we should put down our hands and say, well, I'm going to let go and let God It doesn't mean that we we are not obligated before God to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. That we are to make a careful, studied observance of the Word of God that we might not sin against the Lord. But it does mean ultimately your holiness is carried out by, is brought to effect by God who is at work in you and in me. He has taken up this work personally. He will make you holy. He will give you a share in His holiness. And not only will He do so, but you will love the fact that He has done it. You will delight in that holiness. Aren't there moments when we, we've, we've come to a recognition of sin in our lives and it's humbling and sometimes it destroys us and sometimes others don't really know about it. But internally, we're aware of our sin and it hurts. It can be destructive in the moment, and it's a good thing, because we understand, we know, faithful are the wounds of God. We know that it is a good thing to experience suffering sometimes, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, it was good for me to suffer and to be afflicted, because by it I have learned the commandments of God. Here's the question. Would you have rather just continued in your sin unhindered? Pursuing your own desires of your own sinful heart? Or would you rather God arrested you, took hold of your life, and didn't let you go any further? And perhaps he's caused your sin to be found out. Well, isn't it better that God would cause your sin to be found out, necessitating your repentance, your humility, your return to himself. Isn't that a gracious thing? And can't you look back now and say, surely it was good for me to suffer. It was good for me to experience that momentary affliction because by it I've come into a greater relationship with my Savior and I've come to understand that God desires that I walk in holiness. 
that I flee from sin, that I resist sin and the devil. And James 4, 7 tells me if we resist him, he, he, he will run away. If the Lord is in you and the Lord is working in your life and if you resist him in the proper way through the word of God, by the grace of God, he'll, he'll flee from you. And so God has taken up this work of making us holy. He himself will repair the breaches of our souls when we sin and harm ourselves. He himself will give us daily strength to endure fiery trials and difficult suffering. He himself will build the dwelling of our lives on solid ground so that life's tempests will not destroy his work. So just in a few brief words of application as we draw to the end. You know what Peter is saying to you this morning? He's saying, you don't need to be surprised by fire trials. He's saying, you don't need to be afraid of suffering or the devil. You don't need to be afraid of your God. If he is your father, he loves you and delights in you. And he is carrying out all that he intends for you. He will make you holy. He will confirm, strengthen, restore, establish you. He's saying you can be filled with joy as you contemplate the character and generosity of your God to you, even in the midst of suffering. He's saying this God, to this God, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And and because you cannot carry them yourselves, because you're powerless and weak and you're not able to carry these great burdens, and you're not able to resist the devil in and of yourselves, cast your anxieties and fears upon him. He cares for you. You're not strong enough, but he certainly is. Further, there's there's grace here in this word. It will sweep you up into heaven's heights and lead you to a greater understanding of God and his grace if you would just take up your Bible and read. Are we neglecting the word of God? Are we just reading it f- fast? Or are we so busy in the morning we've, 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 we've spent ourselves taking care of ourselves and getting food and dressing ourselves. We don't want to disappoint our, 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 our employer and we don't want to disappoint uh, our friends, our loved ones. We want to do everything we have to do before we leave. And yet are we leaving getting up early enough to have a few moments alone with God and his word. I know some of us love to read uh, simply by hearing. Uh, We listen to it. There is no replacement for your taking the Bible in your hand, holding it in totality, and opening and reading to yourself out loud. It will commit more of it to your heart and memory and as you read it, you are simply reading back to God what is true of Him. There is a faith walks in that word. If we hear it, it's very different. I'm not saying don't do it, keep doing it, but don't neglect to take up the word and read. There's grace in the word of God. His glory, the glory of God is revealed there. In every word God has spoken He has spoken every single word, and it's to you. And Peter says, stand firm in it. 
I don't know about you, but as I get a little older, I get a little less firm on my feet. I'm a little more inclined to tip over once in a while. I'm a little more inclined to trip, fall. Sometimes I'll fall flat on my face. I went to a concert a couple summers ago with my son, and I fell flat on my face on the stairs of all places. Well, you're not going to stand well in life and be able to stand up straight and stand firm unless you're doing it in the Word of God. Take your stand in life and don't let go of the Word of God. It's a it's a buried treasure. It's a pearl of great price. It's, it's worthy of giving everything for. We need, I think, in this generation, a mighty God, a mighty work of God to refresh our love of His Word. We need the Word of God so that we don't build our house on sand, but rather so that we build our house on the rock, the firm ground of Scripture. I think there's also some brief things here in the passage, too, in this closing as he as he makes salutations to them, he's riding through Silvanus, which is longer a longer version of Silas. Silas, you can read about him in the book of Acts in First Timothy as well. He served the Lord; he was faithful. But you know, Paul was restricted from going into Asia. Do you remember that? As he's praying in the latter portion of Acts, God restricts him by His Spirit and says, "You may not go into Asia." Well, Asia is where Peter's writing to, to the church in Asia. They don't know Sylvanus, but but Peter is saying, I'm writing through someone whom you've heard of, Sylvanus, and he's saying, look, uh, you've never met him, but I consider him, I consider him a faithful brother. He's saying, look, through him I've written to you. I'm exhorting and testifying this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is that? The church in Rome. The church in Rome. Often Babylon is referred to as Rome. Rome is, as it were, the center of the world at that time. And Peter is, in a clandestine way, saying where he is so that the people in Asia would understand where he is. And he's saying, look, this other church that's here, you've never met them, but they're sending you greetings. They're together with you, chosen by the grace of God to the glory of God. They send you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And then he tells them to show affection for each other. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now that was a cultural thing in Peter's time. Um, I'm not so certain about kissing some of you on the lips. And some of the rest of you, it might not be a very good thing. You may not receive that very, very well. And, and I understand. It's okay. But are we showing affection to each other? Are we showing love to each other? Are we putting an arm around each other? Are we calling one another? Are we taking an interest in each other? And when we see each other on the Lord's Day, are we greeting one another? Or are we just going through the motions? Well, we have to greet, otherwise it's rude. But really genuinely taking an interest in each other and saying, Good morning. It's so good to see you. And perhaps hugging. Hugging is a good thing. I started to get to know Andrew uh, Glover just a bit, and and I, you know, I wondered where where he's at. You know, I, I, I worry about where the where the where the edges of propriety and impropriety are, and 
I'll shake his hand, and one day he just went and hugged me. And he took a step over that boundary a little bit, and he didn't know whether or not I'd accept that hug or not, but he just he offered it, and he went halfway, and I responded. And the next thing you know, after this little dance between us, we hugged each other. And it was wonderful. We ought to be able to hug one another. To show genuine Christian affection. That in that hug we were saying, I I love you in the Lord. There are no boundaries between us in the sense of uh, uh, humanity's creation of things over which we divide ourselves. Don't we divide over a lot of things? Aren't we dividing now over sexuality, coloration, culture, gender? We're dividing over everything. Politics. But it's in the church that we should be able to walk in, throw our arms around each other and say, good morning. I've missed you. It's so good to see you. And for all the rest of us to not not read too much into that, but to see Christian brotherly love there. So let your love for one another be visible and make certain to reaffirm that Christian love. Lastly, the last thing here in this passage, every Christian who is weary from fighting, tired, you're holding fast, you're resisting the devil, you're resisting sin, you're battling against the flesh, you're enduring loneliness, battling depression, discouragements and fears, What can I say? I I, I can't say anything except fight on. Just fight on. You're tired and you're weary. You don't want to hear the same thing anymore, but just keep fighting. Because the God of all grace will one day reveal his glory to you. I don't know about you, but some people I've died and, and people who I've loved or known well, and I'm a bit jealous. I want to live as long as I can. I love my grandchildren. I love my wife. I love my children. I want to see them grow. I want to care for God's people. As long as the Lord is willing to let me serve, I want to serve Him. I want to revere His great name. But I also want to see the glory of God. I want to stand before God and and see with my own eyes the glory of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Don't you? There's nothing in this world that's comparable to him. And so what else can we do but fight on? Fight on because only a little, only a little while. It's only a little while longer. Where there's grace, there's conflict. God's grace has been given to you so that you will not succumb or be cast off. Fill your mind with the anticipation of future glory. Jesus has been touched with the feeling of your infirmities as he himself was tempted and he suffered he knows the battle he knows the conflict he knows the weariness and he will shepherd you through it all to himself the end game is that you stand before him resplendent with his holiness maranatha come lord jesus and in the meantime god will sustain you and keep you and bring you into his glory by His grace. Let's pray.